In this episode, I am once again joined by Stephen Snyder, Buddhist meditation teacher and author of several books including Buddhist Heart, Trust in Awakening, and his upcoming release, Soothing the Longing Heart. Stephen talks about the importance of working with one's personality material, especially after awakening. He points to an idealization of the Buddha and other blind spots in Buddhism that he believes have led to the various behavioral scandals that have surrounded so many famous Zen masters. Stephen discusses how to work with fear and anger, how to heal one's core wound, how to convert the superego into absolute guidance, and reflects on the pros and cons of American culture's interaction with Buddhist religion. Stephen also reflects on how he approaches leading meditation retreats, why he does not enforce strict Zen schedules, the deleterious effect of electronics on concentration power, and the subtle power of taking a Dharma name. So without further ado, Stephen Snyder. Stephen Snyder, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Nice to be here with you again. Well, I'm very pleased to be talking with you. And today we've got a few things to discuss. Your upcoming book, Soothing the Longing Heart. It's in production at this moment, finished but not finalized. And I had the privilege of reading an advanced draft of that uh, just in this, this last week. And it's really a wonderful book. Okay. I'd also like to talk about uh, your teaching activities and your various advances that have happened in your Zen trajectory since we last spoke. So perhaps yeah. we could start there, actually. Uh, in 2024, you're doing quite a bit of traveling and in-person teaching, especially in Europe, uh, London, Italy, Croatia, and so on. And what's happening with that? Right. As you said, I'll, I'll be in Europe and the UK for about a month this year, um, starting with a day long in London on the 30th of March at uh, Goodenough College. And then I'll be doing a 10-day retreat, I, which I do annually in Croatia, and this one is on the Brahma Vihara jhana, so the heart meditations and practices jhana, deep absorption in that. Uh, and then I've gone to self-organized retreats. So I'll be doing one in May uh, in the, the state in the states where I live in Michigan, and this will be on the traditional four elements practice: earth, water, fire, and wind. And it, it dovetails into the new book, but. I'm starting to teach these practices really as a gradual deconstruction of the self, which also purifies the mind. The mind is getting more and more uh, clear, clean, and accurate. And so that'll be a two-week retreat. And then in October, I'm going to be doing a three-week retreat in the state of Utah here in the States. I've rented this beautiful lodge in the mountains. Um, it's got like 13 bedrooms, eight bathrooms. And that'll be a three-week retreat exclusively on awakening. And so I'm, I'm holding the intention that everyone present will be awakening, whether that'll be true or not, but that's my intention. And so anyway, but from here going forward, I'll be doing self-organized retreats uh, here in the States and then also in Europe and UK. And Italy too, did I see that, is that right? You're right. Excuse me. I'm doing a day long in Italy uh, on April 20th in Bologna, and that will be on the topic of soothing the longing heart, as will the day long in London. And so that'll be working with some of the issues of uh, that are relating to the new book. That's very interesting indeed. I'm wondering if you might say a little something about how you run your retreats. 
What can people expect when they go there? Brahmavihara Janas in Croatia, in Michigan, the Four Elements, and in Utah, this three-week awakening retreat. Now that sounds very interesting indeed. So those are quite different themes in a way. Um, how do you organize your retreat? What's the schedule like? What's your ethos, if you like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the schedule, I, I don't follow a traditional Zen approach to retreats, which would, like when I was a young Zen student, we would get up slightly before 4 a.m. and start meditating. And then the show-offs like me would try to stay up till midnight or so meditating when the group broke at 10 at night. So lots of sitting, lots of pain, lots of challenge, uh, which is really how they're designed. My retreats are more in a relaxed Theravadan style. And, and not to say that Theravadan retreats aren't intense. There's just a different approach. Like I'm, I'm starting a retreat on Awakening this week, a six-day retreat here in the States. And the schedule will be, we'll get up around 6 a.m. Um, and then basically there's meditation, 45-minute meditations, then a half-hour break throughout the day. And like after the meals, there's generally an hour and a half break. And then I do a Dharma talk at night. Um, and my retreats, I, I do two guided meditations, which I've done with you, that one absolute peace meditation. So similar to that, the, the what I'm focusing on can change in the guided meditation. None of them are identical. Uh, I'm just reporting on what's appearing in our field. But for example, people can sit where they want. They can sit on a cushion or a chair. Uh, they can move in the meditation hall where they want. Um, you know, my my meditation retreat meditation rooms look more like a slumber party for teenagers than uh, an organized Zen retreat where the lines are very crisp and people don't uh, stray out of their territory. I, I find the more relaxed approach helps people integrate uh, in in a more successful way. That's quite interesting. I often hear discussion about retreat formats and contrasting just those two styles, in fact, kind of that Zen style of uh, strict form, uh, etc. And lo various looser styles than that, whether mm -hmm. it, you're, you can sleep a little bit more, or you don't have to sit in a particular posture, you can move, etc, etc, whatever the case may be. Uh, how have you come to place your retreats along that spectrum in the in the way that you have? I think it's just been an evolution. Um, part of it was I start with the premise that the students are all adults and they're taking time away from their lives to join these retreats. So how they spend their time is up to them. And for example, I don't require people to sit in the meditation hall. If they want to sit out in the woods or they want to sit in their room or wherever it pleases them, that's perfectly fine to do. Some people are extremely introverted and they sit better when they sit alone. Some people are really have a strong, deep attachment to nature. Sitting in nature is really productive for them. So I, I don't assume I know what's the best approach for people and when do they need a nap? When do they need a shower? When do they need to manage these different things? So I just treat them as adults. Here's the schedule. I, I personally attend virtually all the sittings. So I'm in there at least 80 or 90% of the meditations every day. So it's not like retreats where the teachers don't sit. I want to be in there. I want to both contribute to the field, but also 
I'm tracking the field. I'm sensing what's going on. I'm seeing people. So if somebody comes in and is reporting fantastic experience, but when I look around the room, I see they're sleeping. I, I know that probably that's not the case. Or if somebody else looks really sharp and crisp and settled, relaxed, and they just have a look that they're in the zone, then that's one more piece of evidence that confirms what they're reporting. And so far on the self-guided retreats, to be true this year too, uh, I do all the cooking for the retreats. I do the cooking in advance and then freeze things and then just um, uh, just warm them for the meals. Uh, so I, at this point, it's just it's working to do that. At some point, I have one student who's a, a famous chef who's going to be retiring in a few years and has volunteered to take over cooking, which is going to be to everyone's benefit, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, that's part of how it is. It's a little more homegrown, a little more. And I like having like the one building where we're all in bedrooms in the same building because then we're interacting, even though we're not speaking, we're, we're around each other a lot more. There's there's more of a homey feeling and intimacy that comes from that. So uh, I like that. And then and then I started in Croatia and I did it at the a self-organized retreat in September where the last evening we have sort of a meal together. We, we end the retreat before dinner and then, or lunch. And then we have that meal of sort of a celebration ending and people are chatting and um, they, we brought a couple of bottles of wine and everybody had a, you know, those that wanted had a small glass of wine too. And it was really a great community building, relationship building time. So I, I like ending with that too, where, where it's really something that people can feel the connection and the relationship. I think that's important too, to feel, you know, really get Sangha. You know, we talk about it a lot, but we need to also emphasize it at times. You mentioned there hinting, I think, at noble silence. Do you hold noble silence at these retreats? Um, what are the rules around that? And what about electronics? Do you confiscate the, the iPhone and so on? <laughs> hold people down when they want to check. Yeah, we are in noble silence. So uh, the first night of the retreat, uh, I give everyone the precepts. Uh, I've, I've redrafted the precepts, and this will be my next book, um, where I've, like the first Buddhist precept is do not kill. And I've rewritten these to be generative. So what I have is that um, the precept of cherishing life is called preciousness, so the precept of preciousness. Because it gives students a lot more uh, to work with. If I say to you, do not kill, you know, there's certain meanings that have, and then when you check the box, then you're done. But if, if you look at what's precious, what do you want to invest your life energy into in terms of supporting preciousness, that's a much more nuanced approach to me. So that's what the new book will get into. I, I taught a class on the precepts to the folks who will be doing Jukai with me this year, and that's the giving and receiving of the Zen precepts, which is a, a big deal in the Zen tradition. It's viewed as the precepts are enlightened behavior. So to give the precepts of the Buddhas it's believed that Buddhas give them to Buddhas. So it's quite a, a significant ceremony uh, to do. But I'll be starting that in a couple of weeks, my first Jukai. Oh, we asked about electronics. I didn't touch on that. Yeah, electronics are discouraged. I don't actually confiscate them or do a internet blocker or anything. But uh, I do tell people if you if you get on your phone, if you get on your electric device, 
most everyone gets sucked into email or text messages. And as soon as you do, you're going to blow off whatever meditative energy, whatever concentration energy you've accumulated. So ideally, if you can put them away, so many people use them for alarms now that that makes it more challenging on retreats. So anyway, but but I look at it that too, as they're adults, it's their responsibility to invest in their practice. And if they want to blow off the concentration with the phone, that's going to be their choice. But no one's allowed to speak like people working in the kitchen. If they need to whisper about something they're doing, they can do that, but really keep it focused on what they're doing and not, um, you know, because the talking also blows off the concentration energy. So that's why it's so important. Silence, I used to say silence is the jet fuel of meditation. And there is truth to that. I mean, you know this from retreats that it really, it really helps power the retreat by quieting down the thoughts and the surface layers of our consciousness. At the Dharma talks, people can ask questions that relate to the practice. I, I don't take questions on people's personal lives or some other issue. And then everyone gets an interview every other day, no matter how many people. Uh, last retreat I did had 40 people. So I was doing 20 interviews a day because I want to see everybody that often and make sure that nobody's wandering off into a, uh, you know, some form of an eddy or a, a, you know, some a dead end kind of kind of location. Speaking of Zen, you mentioned you're giving Jukai to something like 20 students quite soon. You have also been advancing your own Zen training even recently. And from what I understand, we were exchanging an email in advance of this discussion. You're going to be concluding a ceremony of Zen Dharma transmission in a week or so. And you've described that as an amazing and potent process. So I'm curious if you might talk a little bit about, about that, your own, I suppose, trajectory sure. as a practitioner. Yeah, and actually my teacher is advanced that we're going to be doing that um, after this call. So we'll be meeting and doing that. Um, the Zen transmission process is really the sort of capping of one's Zen training. Uh, we're expected to do a lot of, like in the tradition I'm in, which is the Maizumi Roshi lineage, particularly Glassman Roshi, uh, is who my teacher received Dharma transmission from. Um, there's a combination of both the, for Zen, the Rinzai and Soto, Rinzai being oriented a little more to koan practice, the Soto a little less. Uh, both have koans, both have shikantaza or the just sitting practice. So it's just which is emphasized a little more. And so in this tradition, we learn both. So I've, I've done formal koan study. I've completed about 700 koans with my teacher. And I found the process of the Dharma transmission just really to be one of the uh, greatest times of learning, development, just by going through all the koans and not only resolving them, but also learning why we use the different ones, what their purpose effect is, is really interesting to see. And uh, in the process, one of the sections you work on are the precepts, and there's about 200 koans one does uh, specifically related to the precepts. And while I approached it, I kind of thought it would be fairly routine. I found that to be the most uh, potent and the most sort of life altering. 
really getting the different precepts and the levels of the precepts that one can uh, engage and really presenting the precepts as awakened living. This is how a being would be living unrestrained if uh, they were working in the world and uh, you know, real, deeply realized this would be the natural way. So we're learning how to both live in a way that's uh, more harmonious, more wholesome, and also we're doing less damage to ourselves and others. So uh, again, to me, I think it's an important inclusion to have the precepts. And I only this year I've got about 15 students that are taking the precepts, but it's still a significant number for the first time I'm offering it. And uh, I expect it'll continue to grow each year. I'll offer a, a Jukai every year, probably one in the States, one in Europe, and those that want to do it can. But, but my process and the Zen Dharma transmission, we're doing the concluding ceremony today uh, where I'll be recognized as a sensei, so a Zen teacher, and be given at that point complete autonomy and authority in effect to anchor my own lineage. And of course, my teaching, as you're seeing in the new book, Soothing the Longing Heart, there's an evolution that's happening. There's a, excuse me, there's a combining of the of the deep Theravadan practices, the gradual purification of mind practices with the sudden awakening of Zen tradition. So for the students to have the option to do one or the other or both, it really adds a lot of potency to it. And people, as they're doing the kind of work, the, let's say the liberation of personality patterns, then they're starting to behave better and better live more harmoniously, as I mentioned, and also have less, less uh, difficulty, less suffering in their own life because of their behavior. So it all, it all dovetails together. And just to say one last point, and I'll pause, but uh, this is one of the things I started finding with folks who were post-Kensho, post-awakening, was that a lot of the personality behavior began to get highlighted because it was out of sequence or didn't match the realization of the the vastness the uh, absence of the absolute you know the source of all creation and so as people began to work this i began to see the patterns of it and then when i began introducing it to folks who had not had kensho it still was beneficial and they were uh, their lives were improving, they were getting more and more in touch with their true value, their true nature, rather than just believing all the experiences and memories and conclusions about who I am and what my personality is. I wonder if you might elaborate on that observation. What sort of things in particular were you seeing? Well, just people began to see their behaviors. What I, what I have students watch for is incongruent behavior. As an example, you go into a restaurant, the waitress serves you a glass of water and there's a big, uh, big red lipstick mark on the glass. Uh, do you simply ask the waitress for a clean glass in a polite way or do you blow up in anger and attack the waitress verbally because of this error? And so it's, so it's, it's the disproportionateness which is usually indicating something got triggered. Like in that instance, 
say there was an anger reaction, what I'll have them do is work with that anger, understand it, and then try to move in time to right before the anger arose. What happened when, when they saw the glass and the lipstick? Because it probably wasn't an anger reaction. Probably it was some kind of fear reaction or some type of hierarchical conclusion. They don't think much of me. They don't like me. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. So, so it's getting into what I call the core wound and triggering that. And that's something that, that we, the core wound, we can't work until very late uh, in our spiritual development. It's one of the last pieces we work. So we've got to work all the rest of the issues and dynamics before then. And um, anyway, so starting by this, I have students journal, watch for, watch for the incongruities and, and just watch for the patterns. They, I, I do this a lot and, and watch for, you know, who do you take yourself to be? Well, you know, I'm, I'm the little one. I'm the one who doesn't know much. I'm worthless. I'm, I'm unlovable, whatever it is. And so these begin to get worked and, and I'm not a therapist. I'm not working them from the egoic side. I'm working them for people to see into them, to see what's true and what's false. And that's one of the primary instructions is use the lens of truth. Observe your behavior. You see a behavior that's incongruent. You know, why, why are you doing it? What's, what's it serving? I always assume there's a good reason for its beginning that it was a great strategy. When I was five and I, I reacted in a certain way, that was appropriate for a five-year-old in that dynamic. But now, decades later, is that still the right approach? So we're updating also the personality reactions and bringing our, in effect, we're maturing our consciousness to be present day as much as possible. And that lets us function. You know, it's a, a couple of Theravadan teachers, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters, describe the sila, the, the uh, wholesome practices, like the precept practices, practices, as living in harmony without regret. And it's really that without regret piece that is what I'm seeing as people are doing this personality development uh, and aligning more and more with the absolute. And, and there's also a shift that happens too, Steve, between seeing our world as conditioned as uh, containing birth, decay, and death, and finding that we can contact something that is unconditioned. It doesn't have a birth and death. And to be able to make contact and rest in that is so gratifying and reassuring to us, because ultimately that's what we're wanting, is that contact to know something doesn't die. When, when this dies and goes away, something here doesn't. It returns home. You write in the introduction of Soothing the Longing Heart, Shakyamuni Buddha Daosho is held in the highest regard by Buddhists worldwide. For many, he's the personification of perfection in human form. He's held as a flawless human, dispensing wise meditation and spiritual practice advice. He's not seen as having the normal foibles of us more ordinary humans. And this has led some Buddhist teachers to unknowingly pass over the building blocks of the sense of self that most of us take as foundational reality. And you go on to say that we all need to work our personality and psychological material and identity beliefs. 
you also then later on say that both pre-awakening, and you said this, this is something, I suppose, of a summary of what you've said so far, that the pre-awakening practitioners and the post-awakening practitioners need to work personality material, that uh, aches for exploration, investigation, liberation. I'm quoting you here. And then the third quote, <laughs> recovering, uh, sort of summarizing what you said, and now we move <laughs> beyond it. Um, in my teaching, this is accomplished by engaging the emotions, imitating qualities of authenticity rooted in the absolute. Concurrently, we orient towards dismantling the conceptual framework, holding the shifting structure that is a me. So I'm curious about both of those aspects, engaging the emotions, imitating qualities of authenticity rooted in the absolute. Sure. Well, for example, if you're driving in your car and somebody does something dangerous near you, they cut in front of you, almost causing an accident. For most people, there's initially going to be some kind of fear reaction, um, some fright, recognizing it's a dangerous situation, uh, I'm, I'm at risk, and virtually immediately following touching into that which we would mostly view as weakness, we're going to have a strong reaction because that makes us feel empowered rather than feeling afraid and collapsed. And so um, anger is one of the common reactions, as you know, we worldwide road rage and aggressive drivers is a problem. And so, uh, but what that's mimicking, the strength, uh, the anger is mimicking authentic strength. So part of the practice here is that by being, by, by identifying the fear reaction, the fear felt sense and being with that fear so working with it now, we can penetrate into it enough to really get in touch with our history of fear, all of all of our beliefs and convictions about it. Uh, you know, in my culture, never show fear, always show strength, whatever it is. But we all have beliefs about it that are cultural and familial imposed. And I don't mean imposed in a in a dictatorial way, but just this is how we take them on. So so part of it is working with you want to work with both the anger and then also ultimately you want to work with that sense of weakness, of failure, of collapse, of fear. That is that is the first reaction, and by by working with that, that's going to open up to the natural, authentic strength of the absolute which we can then feel. And then when we get in those situations, there may be a fear reaction, which is simply bodily survival, let's say. There's no history attached to it or ownership, identity. And then there can be the, the uh, filling in, let's say, of, of the absolute strength. So we feel the strength. We don't need to scream at them and flip them off and do all these things. We can simply realize, you know, they they were a bad driver. They made a, a poor judgment. Everything's fine, but I need to, you know, change my driving a bit this way. But but it doesn't go into this sort of memory of you get home and say to your partner, oh, some jerk cut me off and I gave him what for and you know what whatever else. It it, it also karmically resolves more quickly in a way that doesn't leave a lot of traces. Because all of this, like, like say the normal reaction with, with fear 
and then anger, that's going to build on itself. Oh, those drivers are jerks out there. And, and it creates all these stories that we have or about the world and ourselves, all influencing our sense of self. So this is why we have to work through these and see them and open to each of these qualities of the absolute, which is really what I consider our true nature. I consider the absolute in our consciousness to be true nature. So as these qualities get activated, either through meditative realization, through koan work, or through personality work, they're getting activated to when then they'll be available in these other other forms you know meditatively we'll be able to contact authentic strength when it's needed so we don't need to use our normal human effort i'm going to try harder i'm going to work harder this is more no i can just orient and i can feel something that's that's not me but something that has a potency to it and also being unconditioned, it's it has, uh, it's not going to run out. It's not going to dial down. You know, so it's an unlimited supply in effect. So so this is a little bit of how it works. Some of this happens serendipitously with deep experiences, transcendent or realization experiences. We can have parts of our personality be, you know, I use the term blown out, but just they can sort of be purified through the experience of transcendence or realization and and one of the problems i see in buddhism is that we hold the buddha as being someone who didn't need to do this personality work so when i was a young zen student nobody talked about anything like this we all were striving for an awakening experience and at least among the students we believe that the teachers to be living Buddhas. Everything they did was enlightened behavior and speech. And of course, that's proven to be false by looking at the Zen communities since their inception. And virtually all of them have had some scandal or other on some teacher's behavior. So, so clearly they weren't acting in an enlightened way. So this is where we need to just, you know, we don't need to, I, I don't need to, say bad things about the Buddha, but to simply to say, I think there's an idealization that came in here. And and whatever we look at the Buddha and, and conclude, the rest of us need to work this material. I haven't met anybody in, in my experience, the teachers I've known, I haven't met anybody whose personality material was purified completely through a transcendent or awakening experience. So to me, that tells us that we, we need to work this. And then in Demystifying Awakening, my book, I talk about the stair-step method where we'll have a realization, then we've got to work so much personal material. When that gets resolved, it's as though we're ready for the next step. And so then the realization can happen. And then same thing, it's going to highlight whatever's incongruent with that realization. That tells us where we, where we want to work and then leads to the next step. So, so it is. There is a progression to it, uh, in some ways. It's not. It's not as neat as I'm making it sound. Like, for example, if you and I were working material, we'd be working different things just based on our our composition, our lives, our societies. Because even between you know the the UK and and the States, there obviously there are difference in culture and different emphasis on things. So we have to factor that in, the family and cultural influence. And that's why working with international students, I don't assume they're going to hold the same viewpoints I do being raised as an American. 
I have, you know, I have the biases of my of my culture. And but I have to include those as part of my teaching to recognize when I'm putting a filter up for you, wanting you to mimic me as an American rather than what's true for you and what's outside our cultures, too. That's also what we're paying attention to. That's interesting. I wonder if you might give an example of a peculiar, peculiarly American lens that you've noticed and i mean peculiar not in a sense of it being derog i don't mean that derogatory sense just in the uh -huh. sense that it's sort of unique to america in that way well americans by and large i mean it, my experience is most people like their country they like how things are done there's things they complain about but overall the flow of things is is pleasant and the americans more than others i mean the british had their time where we're dedicated to exporting it um you know the way we do things is the right way and so let's get it out there and let's bring all these people into accord and i tell people that haven't traveled internationally you know you have to go to countries and recognize how they do things is perfectly fine it's just different than you're accustomed to so part of it is is recognizing what's the flow that's happening how do you enter that rather than you know, I've had the experience being in Italy a few years ago at a restaurant and an American was doing what Americans are notorious for, who was, you know, demanding an American beer. Of course, the restaurant had all the Italian beers and some European, and this guy wanted an American beer. You know, this is the best beer. You need to have this and was just insistent. Of course, that that's how we get the ugly American reputation worldwide. But it's it's not assuming they're going to have the same things you're accustomed to. It's a you know, different way of doing things. Do you think there's a particular way in which American lenses, and of course we're speaking in general generalizations here, obviously, interact with Buddhism in particular, and are perhaps experienced as indistinguishable from Buddhism to the extent that it's possible to be practicing, say, American Buddhism and not recognize the American part. Is that possible? If so, what sort of, what's the American part? Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a, a particularly, this has been true of the Buddhist traditions as they've made their way into the West and particularly into the States, which we're focusing on. And this is one of the questions is, for example, in the Zen tradition, what of Zen is Japanese, Chinese, and what's American here. There, there were some of the early Japanese teachers who had students coming here to teach who were absolutely dead set against translating the chants into English. They wanted them to stay in Japanese, even though 99% of Americans don't speak Japanese. So, but the idea was they felt the words had a potency in Japanese that would be continued. And of course, like I'm wearing robes, which come from Japan and China. So it's a, a way of honoring the tradition, you know, and things like the Raksu I wear and the other things we do, they're, they're cultural um, you know, followings or, or cultural events. But, but that's part of the question. And like for me, that's one of the questions in terms of teaching. I'm, I'm, when I'm teaching on retreats, I'm watching the groups and online as well. I'm watching the groups and I'm, I'm always experimenting. I tell people, if you want a traditional Theravadan or Zen teacher, I'm not for you. 
I'm I'm constantly mixing and matching. And I did a day long yesterday for a group I have on on awakening. And I brought in some of the four elements practices. And then I ended up doing a guided meditation into the absolute. And we employed some of the techniques we had used and learned with the four elements. So and it was very effective people. I, I was trying to get people to have the experience of sitting with the absence, the emptiness of the absolute, and dropping beneath the concept of it. And that's a really sophisticated practice to do. It's difficult. But by doing it with the four, four elements, having people teaching them how to sit beneath the concept of, for example, hard and soft in our body, you know, we can say hard, we have an idea, history, uh, hard means if I hit it, I hurt my hand, soft means I don't. And, and so by sitting beneath all the ideas, all the memories, all the history, we can get to where what hardness is without going into concept. And this is important because as we practice with the absolute, it's primarily a non-conceptual practice. It's direct awareness. So, so if I want to know what water is, I've got water in a glass here. I can give you lots of ideas about it. I can talk about color and temperature and all these different things. But ultimately, what water is, I know by tasting. Now I know water. So that's what we're trying to orient, or I'm trying to orient students towards, is more of a direct experience, moving away from the conceptual, moving away from the sort of the pattern thinking around things trying to just get beneath beneath that and see what it's like to make direct contact with these things because that's where it's really potent is when we're connecting in a non-conceptual way to it we're getting the sort of direct feed of contact with the absolute which is quite important and potent yes i'd like to follow up on that particularly with the personality material when one works on that and what's the difference between working as you call it in the book, and wallowing, which uh, I think is <laughs> possible. But perhaps one last question on the American cultural thread before we mm -hmm. leave that. Often in these sorts of conversations, when this idea of American Buddhism is brought up, it's usually as a critique, saying, well, there's this American part, and that's not as good, or it's um, recent guest described it as the new kid on the block and the furthest away from the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, that's a direct quote um, from Damarato, in fact, to a uh, recent guest, um, who's an American, by the way, living in Thailand. But um, what would you consider to be positive contributions of American culture to Buddhism? If we flip the script from the usual American critique, or sometimes it's just painted as sort of Western, Right. Oh, this is a Western influence, and that's almost always bad when that where poor West gets that's such true. a terrible, such a <laughs> such a much maligned compass direction. <laughs> but nonetheless, do you see any any good contributions, uh, positive contributions that American culture in specific has made to Buddhism, Zen, or anything like that? I, I'd say primarily what Americans have contributed that's been beneficial is uh, there's a a kind of um, innocence with Americans, a kind of um, an unsophisticatedness, not in a bad way, but more like a fresh, open viewpoint. 
For example, we have a lot of the pioneer spirit, the cowboy spirit as part of our culture. So for example, like students of mine in Italy, their goal in life is to live in the town they were born in. And particularly as Americans, almost none of us live in the town we were born in. We often don't live in the region we were born in. We move around a lot. It's very common here. You know, that's true in my family as well. I've only got one family member within five hours of where any of us were born. Everyone else is scattered around the world. So, so we bring that. And I think also uh, the Americans are willing to look at things and ask questions. So we tend to not just take hierarchical position without question. That both is a good and a bad thing. You know, we can challenge too much, but we also look and see, like for me, I'm always looking, well, what's Japanese in the Zen? What's useful? Um, you know, what's, what's not? And, and, so, and the other thing the Americans bring is, is a breakdown of hierarchy. Because even in, in England, there's a way that people will, in my view, see themselves hierarchical with other people. Like people will listen for the accent somebody has, for example, and that will peg them in some fashion. It's more complicated than I can explain, but I can see them create, like in a room, I can see them putting people in their level of, you know, here's the most refined or, and, and generally that means somebody who has an accent that's to me more like the royal family, a more, um, I, I don't know what you'd call it, but uh, the slang I heard was the plum in the mouth was what someone referred to it as. But it's it's just uh, sort of a, I, I don't know, maybe it's proper English, I, I don't know how you'd language it, but anyway, that's one way that, that Americans break that down. If you come here, and we had a, a retreat full of people, you couldn't pick out who was the wealthiest person from who was the poorest person. We generally dress pretty similarly. We don't have you know, that kind of hierarchical difference either. So, so I think that's been really useful. A and I think here, there's a lot more focus on uh, being of assistance to others, where some of the Asian perspectives can be that people based on the caste system of India, it was karmic. You know, you were born as a low-level person. You were an untouchable. I was a merchant, you know, so the high and the low. And there's a view when someone's suffering like that, someone's homeless, well, that's their karma. They need to work through their karma before they have this good lifetime. And here, like in the, in the lineage I'm in, which is part of the Zen peacemaker order that Glassman Roshi started. He started that because he wanted to feed the homeless. And so part of our charge is to be aware of what's going on around us and to meet that need, whatever that is. I mean, personally, I'm not someone who's really moved to move into and create a, a homeless shelter or to assist the homeless. My teaching and my practice is more focused on trying to bring people and guide people to awakening and then embodying, integrating that experience. That's just where I'm oriented and, and where I land. But others are absolutely doing all sorts of good social works in, in their teaching or in their practice, which I commend. Again, just not how I'm wired. But um, 
So I think in that way, America's done and the West has added some of our Western elements. Uh, the other thing that's interesting with Buddhism is that there really seems to be an embracing of whatever the, let's say the core religion or spirituality is of the country. Like when Buddhism came to China, there was, it, it started with the Theravadan and took to the jhana practice is what came to China. And then the Taoist and the Confucian elements got included. So in the Zen tradition, lineage is huge. We really pay attention to it. We, we keep track of it. My teacher tells me I'm the 30, 83rd generation of teachers after the Buddha. So we have a list of them as part of our transmission ceremony. The last thing you do is all the lineage papers. So you, you write or see all the names from China, from Japan, from America um, that are in our lineage. So, so that's part of the Confucian element. And then we have lots of Taoist and yogic influences as well in the Zen tradition. But anyway, that's, so that's how it gathers. But here in the States, it's, it's done that too, where there's a little more attention paid to, I think, some of the more uh, holistic approaches like Native American approaches to spirituality, where when, when temples are built here, people pay attention to the the countryside how do they position it how do they preserve as much as possible how do they have the right flows you know kind of a feng shui sort of approach so so there are ways that these get incorporated in one zen teacher i know from england uh, kenneth roshi she started doing uh gregorian style chanting of the zen chanting very different from everybody else's she moved away from using japanese um, dharma names to her students who she gave Jukai or ordained and began using um, uh, Anglican names. So more like the Christians, nuns and monks who get a new name when they're ordained or when they're brought into the order. So, so there's lots of ways we're changing uh, the landscape of this. And some people think it's too fast. To me, it's like, let's see where we are in a hundred years. That'll tell more of the story than today. We're still we're still young here. Very interesting indeed. Anglican ordination names for Zen, yeah. Maybe even Latin ones. That would be fun. You can have Latin ones. <laughs> what would that be? What would it be a good Latin ordination oh, name? You're a I, lawyer. <laughs> you must have had took, to pick up a bit I of Latin. Latin. I took Latin in high school, but I'm afraid. Only thing I remember is ex longe, which means far out. <laughs> So, no, I don't think I do very well with, with that. But, you know, it was interesting in, in doing this Jukai for students. Uh, you do give the students two, two new Dharma names. So it was a really interesting process, my first time of selecting names for people. And typically the first name is really their highest ability today. You know, and then the second name is the one that if, if their trajectory continues, and they have uh, the fullness of openings and transcendent realizations, then that might be the reality. So it's, you know, I, I tell people that when I got that, the second name, I always viewed it as a kick in the pants, <laughs> sort of a, uh, you know, a, a lofty ideal and them saying, get to work. 
So it has that that balance. But that was an interesting process. I really I spent a lot of time on it actually coming up with the right names for people. Very cool indeed. So working versus wallowing. What is the difference? You talk in the book about working the personality material. You've discussed that already here today. And what is the difference between working with that material, those layers of emotion, and uh, in some cases, wounding, you even refer to core wounding and so on. What's the difference between working that and wallowing in it in one's meditation practice? The, the wallowing would really be an orientation of uh, it's really looking at our behavior, our pattern, our orientation as being subjective. This is me. Um, you either like me, don't like me. You know, if people start a dating relationship and some of the behavior doesn't work for one of the partners, well, this is just me. You know, you've got to accept it or reject it, but uh, in effect, I'm not changing. So it's a kind of commitment to it. And part of the shift that happens as we begin working this material is it moves from subjective to objective. So rather than me saying, this is me, it's unchangeable, it's fixed, it becomes, this is a behavior of mine. This is a reaction response of mine. Then it becomes something we can look at because it isn't necessarily me, it's what I do. So that's one of the big shifts that has to happen along the way. And, um, you know, because a lot of these experiences, the awakening and even the transcendent experiences like jhana, one, those experiences are experiences without a sense of self, without a, you know, the markers of me, the, the sense of a body, the, the thoughts, just, just the perspective are all dormant. And so that, that's revolutionary, but you have to work the material enough to where you can put it down. It can be uh, relaxed while the experience happens. And there isn't, because typically there's a kind of gut clench, a, a fear reaction that's sort of on the spectrum of, I'm gonna get hurt or I'm gonna die. I'm gonna go crazy. Um, you know, something horrible is gonna happen. But typically, it's, it's that I'm going to go crazy or I'm going to die are the two real core ones that people get wound up by in practice. And this is what keeps people from realization in jhana is the personality is afraid and the personality gets, I'm not having this experience. I don't get to go. So it's a little bit on the pouty side to say, you know, well, you're not going anywhere. I'm not going. But that's sort of the attitude that it takes. So so it's getting distance from that. And Part of it's when people work with me, part of what's happening is we're, we're harmonizing the absolute each time we work in a one-on-one. -on -one. And so some of that's happening serendipitously. And then we just look at what's, what's up. I tell people, you don't need to look for what to work on in your life, just pay attention. Because you know this from life, Steve, that we'll have thematic things happening. You know, everybody will be commenting on one aspect of you or one, one thing you do, I mean, it'll come up in 10 different ways. And, and you're like, what, have they been talking? Did they organize this thing? It's like an intervention. But, but it's just life telling you what you're ready to work, what can be engaged. So again, if we're, if we're watching, paying attention, it's not hard to know what we need, to, what's ready to be worked and what's, um, you know, what, what's ripe. 
Very interesting. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you about Core Wound, and then I have some questions drawn from various aspects of your book. Um, you write about the Core Wound. Each of us has experienced a variety of heartbreaks, unfulfilled romantic relationships, unsatisfying birth family issues, shifting work environments, unclear social relationships, and potent social issues. We're all walking around with what I call the core wound. This painful core wound is one we've been holding preciously since infancy. So I'm curious about that. Then what is the core wound? Uh, what is its significance? And how do we determine what our core wound is? Yeah, good questions. Yeah, and, and just to say, this is not my invention. This is from tracking my own practice, working with students, and then doing some outside education. I mentioned I'm not trained as a therapist or in any psychological expression. But, but what made sense to me was that when we're born, we're born into what some of the psychology folks call the dual unity. There isn't an established sense of self. We're part of the undivided wholeness of the absolute, particularly the presence. We, we actually don't, as infants, we can't see that we're separate from the caregiver. All we feel and experience is the oneness. But what, what happens is the child ends up at some point recognizing, you know, hunger is here, food is there, clean diaper, you know, dirty diapers here, clean diapers there. So we begin to see all of the need is here, all of the solution is out there. So that begins to establish a sense of self based on the body boundary. I feel pain in this body, I don't feel pain outside. But it also elevates our caregivers into a, a kind of idealized position. We need them. I mean, they are the gods that are keeping us alive. So at some point we realize we have to invest in this birth family, in this society, culture, et cetera, uh, to survive. Our life depends on it. And so reluctantly we turn away from this unity we have with the presence of the absolute, and we turn towards the birth family. And the interesting thing is that virtually everyone uh, takes the blame. Uh, I'm defective. You know, the absolute, the presence threw me out. I got thrown out of the Garden of Eden. I was seen as bad, as evil, as unlovable, worthless, whatever it is. And that starts a core story. That's that core wound of, you know, whatever that whatever it is. And it's some version of basically I'm worthless or I'm valueless. But it, but it's each person has a very specific languaging to it. I mean, not that yours and mine could be the same. I don't mean it's that individualistic, but ours could also be different based on our early life. And so then we have the process of beginning to construct a personality. And part of the personality's function is to keep us and everyone else from paying attention to the core wound. So it's look at all these cool things I can do. I'm funny, I'm smart, I'm good at sports, you know, I do this, I'm good at that. So look at all those things. Don't look at this place that feels, you know, broken, damaged beyond repair, uh, you know, it, in effect, presence decided I was the, the worst one. I was the... I was voted off the island in the reality TV <laughs> languaging, but but that's where it starts. And so by working just the issues that are coming up in our life that are obvious, uh, 
it's like we're tracing back all these streams, these mountain streams, and eventually we get to the river, and the river is more core, and eventually that leads to whatever the source is of the river, which is going to be the core wound. I mentioned in Demystifying Awakening, in my observation, that doesn't get resolved until the the what's called the final awakening or the daigotete realization but that gets resolved either prior to the realization or immediately after the that awakening the core wound is done and and that's a big shift because the sense of self drops away forever there's no sense of self after that so anyway that's a long answer but but that's sort of the way i hold it in terms of structuring it and then that becomes the work and and it takes a while for people to get the core wound. They've got to touch into it enough to begin to get their flavor or their um, definition of what it is. You say something very interesting a bit later in the book, that the superego can be slowly converted to the guidance of the absolute. I'm wondering if you might talk a bit about that. Might be, mm -hmm. I suppose, worth defining the superego and then how it can be defined, how it can be converted to the guidance of the absolute well the superego is viewed i think by most of psychology as being a psycho psychological structuring and my understanding is that when we're roughly five years old ish that as we're beginning to differentiate from our parents and caregivers and we're beginning to be more independent so to play outside of the view of our parents or caregivers um, to have time when we're away at school or what have you. And um, so we begin to get away, but part of what happens is we, we internalize the parent or caregiver. And so we have them telling us things, don't run in the street, don't play with scissors, don't you know do all these things. And again, for, for being whatever we are, three to five years old, great information, helpful advice. But what happens is that structure continues. So we continue with getting that kind of feedback and the superego develops into a very, or can develop into a very harsh critic. Uh, you make a mistake, that's the stupidest thing you've ever done. So it, it's that harshness and part of the function of the superego is keeping us little and contracted. And for spiritual development, for transcendent and awakening experiences, we need to be able to expand rather than the contraction. So that's why I include engaging the superego. We have to work with it with a diligence when that criticism comes up. You know, you're, you're the dumbest person that, that's ever walked the earth. There has to be, now, now I make a differentiation between a child who's had normal childhood trauma uh, and th those that have had severe trauma. And everybody knows which group they're in whether they're severe or, or normal trauma or average trauma. Um, and those that are severe, they need, they need to work with love and, and compassion in relation to the superego. For the rest of the folks who are the average trauma folks, they can use some assertiveness. Stop, not now, go away, get out of here. I don't care what you say. There's, you know, it's it, it's a kind of a, and, and as we work that strength component of the absolute, the absolute strength, then we can meet it with a kind of uh, potency. 
rather than just another personality attempt. So, so this is where it starts. We start unwinding that. And like I was somebody who had um, a superego that was negative, but I also had a superego that's positive. No one's ever done it better. You're amazing at doing this. You're so incredibly smart and gifted and you know all these things. And I've told people that's even harder to work with because you like it, <laughs> you know, it sounds great. So why do I want to stop that? Why do I want to turn off that one? And so anyway, but we have to work with all of it. And this is where the lens of truth comes in. So that's the stupidest thing you've ever done. No, I don't think so. I think I've done dumber stuff than this, you know, definitely. So, so some of it's a rationalization or bringing in truth. And then some of it's also not just accepting it and not just collapsing when it appears. And it seems to be as we're working this, and the superego is getting thinner and thinner, it begins to uh, sort of morph into where we can get some guidance, where there can be a kind of knowing or uh, an information presentation, you know, just knowing things. All of a sudden, something is is clear and known, you know, it sort of lands and it's fully unpacked. So, so it begins to have that happen or intuition around things. Doing deep practice with the absolute requires the development of intuitive knowing. That's part of the knowing, the non-conceptual knowing is direct knowing, but using intuition. It's a skill that gets developed over time. That's one of the benefits of the koan practice is we develop non-conceptual intuitive knowing. So anyway, I'm giving a long answer, but but th this is sort of how, how it gets worked with and the reason it's important. And just to understand that the superego is a long-standing structure. So it's not that we engage at one time, it's going to be gone. It, it's not, it's going to be around. So we have to learn how to have a healthy uh, relationship and working relationship. Uh, so we're advancing and occasionally we collapse in relation to the superego, but you know, not always. You mentioned that positive um, superego that says you're the best, uh, you're so gifted, you're so smart. Those are some of the phrases used. And then you joke, well, you know, that's the, one of the hardest ones to get rid of because why would you want to get rid of it? You, but so why would you want to get rid of it from an enlightenment point of view? Because it's not true. Um, it, certainly it can be true. Um, I, I'm intelligent for who I am. But to say I'm the, you know, the smartest person in the world, I don't think so. <laughs> so so it's, it's just recognizing what's true. And whatever's true, we let land. This is the instruction I give students. Whatever's false, you have to let go of. You can't keep. So when you know something's false, you've got to be done. While if something is true, then you can let that land. And so part of it is we're, we're sifting through and we're really collecting what's beneficial, what's uh, wholesomely present and functioning, whatever's unwholesome, whatever's dysfunctional, whatever's bad habits, we want to at least move to the periphery, if not discard, if we can. But, but we have to understand their source. And that's part of that question is, what's good about it? You know, I have a certain dysfunctional behavior What's the benefit of that behavior? And, and we need to understand 
That's what started it. That's what put it in place. When I was five and I kicked somebody in the shins, that was exactly the right response to this situation. Decades later for me to kick someone in the shins for that probably isn't appropriate. It's probably not going to work. So, but feeling the need that I want to be physical with them as a response, that's what I'm wanting to understand more of. Why do I want to punch them in the nose when I feel I'm being put down or treated badly? So anyway, all, all these things, it sort of weaves together. It's, there's all these pieces and there's a certain rhythm each person has that's different. So my students won't work this, be working the same material but they'll eventually work the same material. It just depends on how they're structured, what they get to first, what's ripe and ready. You also write in the book about a misunderstanding of compassion. To quote you, for many of my early years as a meditation student, I believed and acted as though compassion meant to eliminate or fix my or another's problems. In effect, this understanding and behavior perpetuates a savior mentality. In other words, it's now our job to save ourselves and others from the slightest discomfort or pain. And you go on to give some examples from your own life that highlighted this. I wonder if you might talk a bit about that misunderstanding of compassion and what is your new understanding of compassion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mentioned as I was taught, compassion is, is, was talked about in my early years in the Zen tradition. I've been in the Zen tradition about 50 years now, so in the early days, it would be mentioned. There weren't practices for it per se, but it was just included as sort of the Buddhist presentation. And my understanding was that we met suffering with some type of tenderness, uh, some type of um, opposite, so to neutralize the pain, to soothe it. But the idea was to get away from the pain, and th this was my belief. So when, when I or others had painful or suffering, what we call dukkha uh, situations, my strategy was to get away, to either bypass or find some other way, you know, or orient towards something that's beneficial or good, blocking out the, what I thought is negative. But what I see is compassion is really about tenderness. It's really about a tender holding. And I learned this really as a parent, as my children got to be teenagers and were prepared to make uh, what I consider to be an unwise life choice. And in my languaging, I could tell they were going to be running headfirst into a brick wall. And I felt my function as a parent was to prevent that. And when I did prevent it, which I did sometimes, uh, almost always, immediately after that, they would find a way to run into that same brick wall headfirst when I wasn't around or didn't know about it. And they would probably sustain more damage than if they had hit the brick wall the first time. So I realized I wasn't actually helping them by taking away the suffering. And I thought back on my own life and realized how much I'd learned, what life lessons I'd learned from doing just that. So they're important. And we each need to learn to stop running into the wall. But we stop when we're pain when it's painful enough. So that's where the tender holding comes in, where if you're going through a difficult life situation, I can feel a tenderness in my heart, uh, helping to hold the dynamic with you. 
I don't know what the best solution is for you. If you have a relationship, you know, the challenge, trying whether you should break up with your partner, for example, I don't know what the right answer is, but I can at least help hold it with you and we can give some time and some tenderness to the situation. And a lot of times that'll help it unfold to see what's an optimal choice. So that's an example of the application of compassion. Thank you. Very interesting. And a little bit later in the book, you also include some stories of awakening. And they were very interesting to read. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the inclusion of those stories and what you sought to communicate through that. Well, I've noticed that in my teaching, as there are students who uh, have had deepening awakenings, it's becoming apparent to others in the Sangha that that's the case. Based on the questions they ask, the comments they make, uh, it's clear that something's happened. Part of what I saw was not only others were recognizing the change, but that it was inspiring to them. They were seeing that this is actually uh, what I'm talking about is true for more than me. And, and that was really impactful. So I decided in this book to start including, I've had students over the last two or three years, a growing number that are having Kensho and Satori experiences and cessation experiences. And so I had some of those folks write up their experience. The ones you've read haven't been edited yet. I left them exactly as the person wrote them. Uh, you know, I'll let my editor edit those down. I, I frankly couldn't do it. Uh, but but it shows, we can see from reading those that there are similarities and there are differences. So the similarities we can see are probably going to apply to most people, but but it is going to be very unique based upon your structuring. And one of the things I've noticed in the awakening, you know, collecting these stories was the importance of understanding doubt and trust. And in Theravadan Buddhism, doubt is really understood with three applications, either doubt in the teacher, the teachings, or oneself. So on in-person retreats, I'll often suggest to people, you know, evaluate your trust level. How much do you trust me as a teacher on a one to 10 scale, my teaching and yourself? And what I've found from doing this is the people that are having the transcendent experiences, the awakening experiences, the trust level in, in me and the teaching is at a 10 or very high. I, I don't do anything to influence what they think about that or their number. That's not the point. But when they can really trust it, they can surrender to it. That's what's important. So, so it's all these things going on. But I wanted people to see these are real. You know, this isn't abstract. This isn't fairy tales. This is real things that are affecting people's lives positively. And, and from the couple of folks that have looked at the book, that's been one of the, one of the parts of the book they've really keyed into how, how impactful, how potent those stories are. But what I want people to get from reading it is it's possible for you. That's the real message of it. It's not just the teachers who, you know, people look at sometimes at teachers say, well, you have good karma, you have, you know, greater ability, you know, maybe there's truth, maybe not, I don't really care about any of that, but, but I want people to know it's available to you. That's what's the important message. 
And that's why I say the awakening retreat, the three week one, I, I do carry the intention. I, I really have the intention of everyone having an awakening experience. Um, again, I can't make it happen. I don't make awakening happen, but that that's my intention in terms of teaching and holding the space and what I want people to come prepared for. Very interesting indeed. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Stephen. I wonder if, as we bring this interview to a close, if you have any concluding thoughts or anything that remains to be said that you'd like to mention. I think I just would encourage people to to engage whatever practice they feel most drawn to do. Uh, I would encourage people to do in-person retreats. That's really where a lot of the important work happens. And uh, if your teacher offers one-on-ones, that's also a really potent uh, practice engagement that seems to make a big difference for people. So, so just you know, dedicate yourself, watch your life, be willing to change, um, and also enjoy the ride. I mean, I look at it that we're, we're all practicing for all beings. So it isn't just that I'm advancing myself. You know, all of consciousness gets advanced as each of us practices. So we're doing a service to humanity and to the the universe. And remind us, where can people find out more about the retreats you're doing in this year in London and Italy and Croatia and the States and so on? My website, awakeningdharma.org. Uh, I also have a very active YouTube channel under my name, Stephen Doetsu Snyder, and uh, new videos are put up every couple days. And so those are good, there's good practice videos there, good informational videos. And so I encourage folks and I want to congratulate you on your 20,000 subscribers. I'm, I'm approaching 600. So that seems like a, <laughs> an unattainable number to me. <laughs> thank you very much. Steven Snyder, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.